On October 17, 2011, the Wall Street Journal ran an article crediting the Bayh-Dole Act for being one of the three greatest policies for helping to create the U.S. jobs economy. Passed in 1980 with bipartisan sponsorship of Senators Birch Bayh and Bob Dole, the act allowed for university researchers that had received government funding to license important discoveries commercially. However, recent comments in the U.S. Senate and Biden administration are threatening to upend the Bayh-Dole Act, with increasingly bellicose demands for the government to march in and take back patents licensed under Bayh-Dole. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking to Joseph Allen. Joe served as a senior staff member for former Senator Barch Bay and was instrumental in working behind the scenes to ensure the passage of the historic Bayh-Dole Act. He is the executive director of the Bayh-Dole Coalition. Joe, truly great to meet you. Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on here. and looking forward to our conversation. So you were at ground zero. You were there at the birthing of the Bayh-Dole Act into law. What was the world like before the passage of the Bayh-Dole Act? It's a long time ago now, so it, it, you know, it's hard for us to remember what, what it was like before our universities and federal laboratories work with industry. But there actually was a time before 1980 where if the government funded any percentage of research and an invention was made, the government would take it away from the inventor and bring it to Washington and try to make it available freely. It was kind of like a, a Marshall Act of technology, like we had the Marshall Act of economic development after World War II. And while well, it was well-intended, what happened was in the, you know, after World War II, the U.S. is like the only economy still standing, but Japan and Germany started getting back on their feet and started competing with us in, in technology areas. And what we found was, um, when I came on Senator Bayh's staff in, in the late 70s, was the U.S. was actually losing market advantages in areas we used to dominate, like steel and electronics and automobiles, to Japan and Germany. And we also found out that despite billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer money going into supporting university research and federal lab research, that very little was being commercialized. So I did work for Senator Bai. Uh, we got approached by Purdue University one afternoon, and Purdue started telling us that they thought they'd made a, a potentially important uh, invention with Department of Energy funding, and it was going to be taken away from them and probably never developed. So we said, well, that just doesn't make sense. Who, who benefits from that? And they said, well, it's not just with Purdue, it's actually across the board. So um, Senator Bai asked me to look into that, and we found out that Senator Dole had similar concerns. Now, the interesting thing is, Bai was a liberal Democrat, uh, Dole was a conservative Republican. We're doing this, starting this like in 1978. We're getting ready to go into a very contentious election year, very much like we are right now. Yeah, I mean, people forget that. It was the middle of the Carter administration and it, highly it, polarized. Ex- ex- absolutely. People think this is the first time this has happened. No, no believe, believe me, it's not. And so, you know, Bai and Dole didn't typically work together. It was sort of being like if, if, if Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz suddenly, you know, started doing something in, in conjunction today, in today's world. One thing we agreed on was if the government, if the taxpayers are paying billions of dollars of research, in addition to having papers coming out, which, which again, at that time, we're just giving the technology away and our foreign competitors are taking advantage of that and then selling us products back. We said, we want to make sure that to the extent possible, if inventions are coming out of that, of that research, the early stage, we need to be able to work with the companies to actually turn those technologies into useful products and also, we want to help grow our economy. So what Bayh-Dole did was it actually changed course from World War II until, until 1980. And we said, okay, no longer are we just going to give these technologies away. Bayh-Dole said, we're going to decentralize technology management from the Washington bureaucracy. And if you make an invention as a university or small business, you can own the invention. 
The government can use it for its purposes, which is mainly to do more research. But then we're going to incentivize the universities and small companies through the restoration of patent rights to go back and license a company to develop it in the United States. And if the technology is, in fact, successfully developed, that the university has to share royalties that come in from sales, and they have to share those with their inventors, and then put the money back into additional research. So Bayh-Dole is a real sea change. What we found out later was it actually re, it, it re-energized the U.S. economy. The Economist Technology Quarterly said it was perhaps the most significant bill passed in the last 50 years, quote, more than anything else it helped reverse America's precipitous slide into industrial irrelevance. So the reason that now the U.S. economy is roaring, the reason that we're the leader in life sciences, is because we have alliances between our public and private sectors which I think Bayh-Dole made a huge contribution to. So it, it really is a different world. And I think uh, the benefits have not only gone here, but around the world because you have products out there that wouldn't be developed before. But the other thing is we've actually brought economic development back to the United States. And uh, we now are, are, are the world leader by far in innovation, which in, in 1980, that was very much in question. Yeah, in 1980, Arthur Damrich from Harvard published his very famous study that looked at the productivity of the industry. And what it found is between 1970 and 1980, 60% of pharmaceutical products were made in Europe, not the United States. Right. Now, the key point of this, and I, I think we need to drill into this a little bit more, it's this idea that you couldn't patent those assets that came out of the university. Now, why is that so important? Well, you could patent them. But what happened was they, we destroyed the incentives of the patent system because uh, under before Bayh-Dole, uh, well, what happened is, you know, under U.S. law, the patent has to be filed by the inventor. So you would have the inventing organization would file a patent, but then the government would actually take ownership of it. So what happened was there was really no incentive, which is intended by the patent system, for anybody to remain engaged in the development. Because, for example, if you were at any university and you had to sign your, your rights to the government, what happens is when companies are start trying to develop this thing and they want to find out, get your, your brain engaged in this, well, there's no reason for you to remain, you remain involved in it. So what happened was we actually had destroyed the patent incentives. That's really why companies you know, had no interest in, in developing these because, as you well know, it takes an awful lot of industry risk to take a government-funded invention and turn it into a product. That is a huge, huge step, and that, that risk is borne by the, by the private sector. Under the Bayh-Dole system, about 70% of university licenses go to small companies, yeah. and they have to raise venture funding. Well, if you don't own the technology, if you can't keep your competitors from using it for free, no one's going to give you that funding. So it, it really was a philosophical change. The other thing about Baidol was in the late 70s, Japan Inc. was the model people were looking at, right. which was big government and big industry plotting the future. Well, the reason Japan Inc. worked so well was they're basically, they're basically copying what we had done before. So if you're a copier, that model works okay. When you get to the front of the curve and you actually now have to start taking risk and developing technologies, that model doesn't work. And because of Baidol, the U.S. shot by Japan. You know, once we, once we turned our entrepreneurs loose and said, okay, you can own the inventions, put money into them. If you, if you lose the money, you know, if companies are unsuccessful at commercialization, no one pays them back. But we turned our entrepreneurs loose, and they really reversed our slide there where it really looked like in the, in the late 70s that uh, actually the Japanese had told Secretary Baldrige when I went to work at the Commerce Department that you Americans ought to be satisfied being a service industry. You know, you ought to do what you do best. You grow crops, you, you, know, you, you work at McDonald's, nothing wrong with that work at McDonald's. But you don't build a, uh, a high wealth economy by doing that. 
because of Baidol and because of these public-private partnerships now, we are leading the world in taking government-funded research and turning it into, into new products. In fact, the Japanese have adopted Baidol. Yeah. The Chinese have adopted Baidol. So Baidol has become, in fact, a recognized world best practice. We have this state-of-the-art approach to commercializing public research. It's been hugely effective. Yet, three weeks ago, a group of 25 senators led by Senator Elizabeth Warren requested that Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra exercise marching rights under Baidol for a drug called Extandia, a prostate cancer drug. Can you tell us exactly what are marching rights and why is Senator Warren so exercised over this? Before Baidol, when I mentioned the government-owned invention rights, it became very apparent all the way back to the Kennedy administration that that wasn't a very effective policy for commercializing technologies. So what President Kennedy did was, uh, and actually this is even in place in the, in the Truman administration, what happened was the government would take your invention away, but you could petition on a case-by-case basis to try to get your invention rights back. And you had to show you know, that you had a commercialization plan, whatever. Of course, the alternative was that the government owned it, it would never go anywhere. Right. But in the few cases where the government did make a waiver, they had a provision in there that says, okay, if you're not making good faith efforts to commercialize it, we're going to march in and take the technology back. And the purpose of that was to make sure it was exploited. Exactly, because the purpose of, of government technology policies has always really tried to be, let's make sure the extent we can, these things are being developed. And what we found was a theory of, okay, we'll put these in the public domain by basically destroying the patent right really wasn't working. But again, it's, it's like it was a long, expensive experiment. So anyway, President Kennedy put out a memorandum actually expanding the use of the waiver process and actually, again, defining again, these are the terms where we'll take the technology back if you're not commercializing them. And then later they said, if the government does take the, take the invention back, it'll make them available to other people on reasonable terms. Now, reasonable terms means terms conducive in the licensing for commercialization. A, a couple of years later, President Nixon built on that and said, okay, he's, he's expanding the waiver process, making it even more liberal. That's the way things stood until about 1968. In 1968, Lyndon Johnson called in the Comptroller General, Almore Stats, and he asked him a simple question. How come no drugs are coming out of NIH funding? Because we're putting billions of dollars into NIH funding, and we're not seeing anything being commercialized. So the Comptroller General looked at that and he said, reported back that the reason that, that NIH-funded inventions were not being commercialized was there were not appropriate patent incentives to justify companies' investment they had to make to turn these into products. So NIH started their own waiver process, and they said, for universities that have a technology transfer capability, we'll allow you to own the invention, you can license them, but again, if you're not licensing them effectively or if it's not being commercialized, the government can march in and issue new licenses to make sure they're being developed into products. It was that administrative policy that was ended in the Carter administration that Senator By and Senator Dole turned into a statute. That was the basis of Bayh-Dole. So to answer your question, Bayh-Dole built on the, on the historic use of marching rights back to the 1950s, saying, okay, if we're going to give you this invention right, you have to show that you're making good faith efforts to commercialize it. If not, the government can march in and license other people. The other thing was Bayh-Dole actually expanded that. We said, okay, that, that's one circumstance. We want to make sure it's being developed for practical application. In other words, it's being turned into a product. But we also said, suppose, for example... A company, back to the pandemic, suppose a, a small company makes a vaccine that's critical for meeting the needs of a pandemic, but they can't, meet, they can't produce enough to actually help you know, inoculate the public. 
and they won't, they won't license to other people that can make more. Well, in that situation, the government could march in if you can't meet a health or safety need. We also said if you can't meet the needs of a, of a federal regulation. Again, you've, you've, you're trying to commercialize it. We're not saying you didn't make good faith efforts. But now a serious situation comes up. We need to have some remediation of a smokestack. You can't produce enough to do that. It's a critical need to help you know, fight uh, climate change. So we're going to march in on those circumstances. And we added one more, and we said under Bayh-Dole, there's a pre- when universities are licensing their technology, they have to give a preference for small companies because small companies drive our economy. And we also said there's a preference for people that will make the product in the United States. So if, in fact, you violated your pledge to make it in the United States, the government could march in. So there's four march-in triggers. But the one that has been most contentious and I think uh, misunderstood is the first one about practical application. Yeah. Because we define practical application as available to the public on reasonable terms. I'm sorry to get too far down in the weeds, but... How do you define reasonable terms? Well, it goes back to the terms of the university license. Right. And that's where people, I think, I'm not not, uh, disparaging anybody's um, uh, intent. It is ambiguous, unless you know how the law is constructed. Because I mentioned there's four march-in triggers. The march-in trigger for public health and safety for federal regulations and for domestic manufacturing apply to the patent owner and the licensee. The licensee is the company commercializing it. The first trigger, which is what we're debating about, only applies to the patent owner, which is a university. The reason we did that was, if you go back to 1980, which is much different than today, universities didn't have much experience with patent licensing. Most of them, there was was a reason for that. They did, the government took the inventions away. Yeah, there was nothing there to patent. So this is all new. So one of the concerns we have was, okay, these people are so naive. Well, uh, yeah, well, you know, what concern was, suppose a dominant company comes into a university that doesn't really know much about this, and they license the technology to suppress it because maybe they've got a product on the market that this could threaten. Okay, so that's why we want to make sure it's moved to practical application. The other thing was we wanted to make sure, since universities are new, that you're not putting crazy terms in there. Right. Like a million dollars up front, or you have to hire the president of the university's daughter to run the company, you know, whatever. Because we want to make sure, again, back to the original purpose, they were moving to commercialization. The first trigger on practical application when it says reasonable terms has to apply to the license because the university does not set what the price is. Right. And when this first came out, this theory only came out that Bidol applies to pricing. It only came out 20 years after the law passed. Yeah. So for the first 20 years, nobody had that construction. This was never anticipated that pricing would even be in the in the scope of the negotiation. No, and there's, there's nothing. In the, I mean, I, I staffed the bill. I wrote the legislative history. I, you know, I actually oversaw the law at the Commerce Department. So you know what's going on. <laughs> well, th- that's, that, that's my disadvantage. I was actually there. So this, this theory came out 20 years later by a couple of law professors who wrote a paper saying, okay, it's like the Da Vinci Code. We hid a hidden meaning in the statute that no one ever knew. Well, that's not how you do legislation. And when I first read their paper, I kind of laughed because that clearly is not what we had in mind. And they built their case on quoting either critics of Bayh-Dole or other hearings, which is not the legislative history. But then they actually wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post called Paying Twice for the Same Drugs, which alleged that that, be, that the government was not enforcing Bayh-Dole for price control. And so I had not worked for Senator Bayh for 20 years. I actually called him up and said, Senator, this is really serious. You know, we need to push back on this because that's not how your law works, and that would actually undermine the whole statute. No, no one would ever, ever commercialize something without hanging over them. He got a hold of us. He said, let me call Bob, Senator Dole, 
Now, interestingly, the Washington Post gave the critics an op-ed. I'm, I'm, yeah, an op-ed. When we tried to go back, they said, we'll only give you a letter to the editor to respond. Well, a letter to the editor is a lot shorter than an op-ed. Yeah. So Senator By and Dole immediately wrote back and said, no, that's not how our law works. And when the first March in petition was filed for price control, Senator By actually went to NIH. They had a public meeting, and he explained how the statute worked, how this is a misrepresentation of the legislative history. And he said, look, you can criticize us and say we should have put price control on there, but we didn't. And he said the way to fix that is if, you're, if you really want that, then put, pass your own legislation. Yeah, amend the bill. When you do that, you're probably going to kill it because back to what you said. Suppose you're li- negotiating a university license. You, you've got a commercialization plan. You're a small company or a big company, and you're going to make it in the United States. Suddenly, you read this clause that says, okay, and by the way, now remember, you're just starting. The, you haven't commercialized. You haven't developed anything. You've got a university invention, which is more like an idea than a product. Then you've got this clause that says, and by the way, you'll agree to sell it at a reasonable price. And so you ask, well, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, we don't know. But you commercialize it, and then and then we'll tell and you. then we'll tell you, and it will tell you by a, some government bureaucrat deciding whether or not they like your price. Yeah, ex post facto. And the final thing I'll add is, NIH actually in the early '90s was forced by congressional pressure to put a reasonable cl- pricing clause in their cooperative agreements called CRADAs with industry and their licenses. So what happened? Did we have a golden era of cheap drugs? No. What happened was they walked away. Yeah, no one was doing CRADAs. And after five years. Harold Varmus, who was then the director, brought a blue ribbon panel in. They looked at that, and they said, this, this should be revoked. And so when Varmus revoked the reasonable pricing clause, he said, this has done no public purpose. All it's done is prevent important partnerships from being funded with industry. And after that, that clause is removed, suddenly the partnerships with NIH went back up again. So you have people now... I think they're well-meaning. Obviously, we, you know, the whole thing about health care is a legitimate concern, but Bayh-Dole cannot be used for controlling prices. It's not the intent of the statute, and I think Congress, rather than looking for an easy solution through, through Bayh-Dole, which actually would not work, you have to address that directly because Bayh-Dole is not the reason why we have expensive health care. Uh, Bayh-Dole is the reason why we have drugs and other therapies that actually can help keep people, people alive. And keep uh, ideally keep costs down and keep them out of the hospital. Well, and the other thing that people should remember is Bayh-Dole is a uniform policy. It doesn't just apply to NIH. It applies to all federal agencies. So if you ever let this genie out of the bottle and say, okay, now anybody can file a marching petition. So suppose it's a rival company or your brother-in-law or a foreign company that you've got a product on the market and they say, hey, we don't like the price. We don't think it's reasonable. No VC would ever fund a company with that hanging over them because no one can tell you what it is. They tell you what it is after you've done all the work. You know, that would turn Bayh-Dole on its head because you'd be a, you'd be a fool to commercialize a federally funded technology with that hanging over you because you never know if you can protect your investment or not. No one will license anything. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You, it's actually not funny. It's tragic because what you're talking about is at a time when we're fighting for our, our technological lives against China, which has adopted a Bayh-Dole Act and actually wants to overtake our lead, to actually now have us shoot ourselves in the foot by that for something that would do no good and actually would do a lot of harm. We actually, I run the Bayh-Dole Coalition, as you mentioned. We had uh, four energy entrepreneurs, four four small companies that are in energy technologies. All all of them said, if the government ever marches in again on anything, we would never trust them, we would never do this. And one of them had it raised $800 million of private venture funding for a, uh, a new energy technology out of MIT. 
He said, there's no way I would have gotten funding for this because you'd be a fool to put your money in there because you couldn't protect your investment. The thing about Baidol is, for 42 years, it's been predictable. People know what the rules are. And the other thing I should add is there's been a series of, of marching petitions filed for price control. They've been rejected by every administration that's looked at them, Republican, Democratic. The most of them were rejected under the Obama-Biden administration because they all looked at the statute and they said, that's not how the law works. It's not for price control. So it's, it's too bad we're going through this again, but um, uh, I don't want to uh, impute anybody's motives, but this, is, <laughs> this would not do any good. It would be a disaster for, our, for U.S. competitiveness because it would undo our public-private partnerships just when we need them the most. It's really interesting. You had a 40th anniversary event, and you had Bob Dole, Senator Bob Dole, quite close to before he passed on, we did. unfortunately. He said regarding the Bayh-Dole Act, and I'm quoting, it has served us well since its passage, but it's taken a great deal of work to protect it, unquote. I mean, he was always seen as a, a bipartisan person. He ran for president quite successfully, you know, did very well, almost won. What was his opinion in your conversations with him regarding these attacks on the legislation? Well, as I mentioned before, when, when I talked to Senator Bai about this whole attack on pricing, uh, the first person he called was, was Senator Dole. I mean, he called him Bob. I called him, yes. I called him Senator Dole. But Dole immediately signed on to the letter that he and Senator Bai wrote because both of them knew that the, the, under Bai Dole, you're trying to build confidence in industry, the government's a reliable partner. And if you're going to have some arbitrary price control that's thrown on you, it's just the opposite. The other thing was after Senator Bai lost in 1980, Senator Dole took over the stewardship of Bai Dole. Bai Dole was attacked. A lot, of the, a lot of the agencies tried to undo Bayh-Dole through the implementing regulations. Uh, Senator, Senator Dole stopped that. He actually got a hold of George Bush when he was the vice president under Ronald Reagan, and, and they stopped you know, agencies trying to undermine Bayh-Dole's regulations. The other thing is Senator Dole put a couple mimics under into Bayh-Dole a couple of years later. So he actually, over, you know, when, when, it was just the, when it was a fledgling in the nest and Birch Bayh was gone, Bob Dole protected it. So he had, a, he had a huge interest in it, but he was always very gracious. And you'll see this if you look on our website um, under events, you, you can see the, the What's webinar. the address of the website? By B-A-Y-H, Dole, D-O-L-E, coalition, all one word, dot O-R-G. And if you go under events, you'll actually see Senator Dole's uh, video you're talking about. You'll see Chris By Senator By's son. You'll see a number of other people like Betsy DePerry, who's a cancer survivor, who said, I'm alive today because of By Dole. But, you know, Senator Dole was always very gracious. As you mentioned, he did the video uh, shortly before he passed. He really talked a lot about how much he admired Birch Bayh. Now, again, this is somebody on the different side of the aisle. Uh, Bayh and Dole didn't agree on a lot politically, but they respected each other. And I think this is an issue where they said, okay, whether you're Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, you want to make sure if the government's, if the taxpayers, not the government, if the taxpayers are putting billions of dollars of their hard-earned money into research, and it's leading edge research, we owe them to make sure that's turned into products that actually benefit the economy. Before Bayh-Dole, you're talking about research papers. Yeah. And research papers are easily copied. You know, there's no proprietary protection. So the Japanese took, bought most of our research papers. They were the biggest market for American research papers before Bayh-Dole because they went through them looking for technological leads. Our company stayed as far away from them as they possibly could. So you know, the, the alternative of Bayh-Dole is back again to this old area where the government micromanages it. Technologies are basically put in the public domain, which is the model that a lot of these critics are, are, are you know, want to go back to the pre-Bidol era. Well, if you want to benefit China, 
destroy our incentives for our companies to take a risk to commercialize them here. And the other thing I like to add is what people kind of glance over is most times when companies are licensing a government technology, it fails. Yeah. These are hard to commercialize, particularly in life sciences. I mean, life sciences, you're talking about what a 95% failure rate. The government doesn't pay for that failure. Companies do. People lose their jobs. I mentioned the, I mentioned the, the energy entrepreneurs. One of them had to, hadn't taken a salary for six months. I mean, these people mortgage their, their jobs. One of them talked about what it was like the week before Christmas when it looked like he was going to have to lay his staff off because he couldn't get venture funding. Commercializing a government-funded invention is not a cakewalk. It's not for the week of, week of heart. And the reason our system works is we rely on private sector entrepreneurs to come in there and take that risk. And the public doesn't pay for that risk, and no one reimburses them when they lose. But that's frankly why we're running rings around the rest of the world as we turn our entrepreneurs loose we got the bureaucracy out of the way, and Baidol has blown the doors off of, all, of any other competing system in the world. Frank Zappa said it best. He said, <laughs> I, I think, failure is normal. Uh, success is rare, which is why people get so cranked up about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. On October 7th, uh, Secretary Becerra of Health and Human Services came out very publicly and said that using margin rights for pricing was not, quote, off the table, unquote. Why do you think this is being picked up now at the top levels of health and human services? Is this becoming an administrative position? Well, I certainly hope not. I think Secretary Becerra was um, was actually one of those people when he was in California as the, as the attorney general that actually advocating using margin rights for price control. And, and I, I don't have any inside information, but I think once he actually got to, to HHS and, and speaking to the people at NIH that actually know this issue, I think he's, he's learning now that if you undo by dole, if you undo industry partnerships, NIH could not accomplish its mission. And NIH will tell you that. You know, again, they fund incredible research. They have a lot of expertise there. But the industry people bring a lot to the table, in fact, more to the table as far as turning that into practical application. You mentioned that there's a petition pending. Um, it's called on a prostate cancer drug, Xtandi. Yeah. And the petition is that Xtandi is not reasonably priced, and therefore the government should march in. Now, the interesting thing is that petition was filed before. It was filed in the Obama-Biden administration. It was rejected twice in the Obama-Biden administration, once at NIH, once at the Department of Defense, because the Department of Defense actually funded some of the underlying research. Both of them said Xtandi has met Bidol's criteria, it has been commercialized, and price control is not, is not an issue. And in fact, then they filed a, uh, an appeal and that appeal was turned down. In fact, Francis Collins, who was an NIH director, wrote back to the petitioners and said, according to your own data, the sales of Xtandi are going up. Obviously, it has met practical application. So what happened is the same people pushing this theory, who are people that actually fought Bidol, they wanted to go back to the pre-Bidol era, just filed the petition again. So I think what's going on now is a, a political effort, because the law hasn't changed, the facts of Xtandi haven't changed, but I think there's a political effort now to really, um, you know, browbeat the administration into doing something, which um, I, I think is going to be a public policy disaster. I think it would be overturned by the courts because marching rights are subject to appeal, and the, the, the owner, patent owner has the right to go to court. Um, but it would be a disaster because even if the court upheld the original intent of buy dole, what company would ever trust the government again? Yeah. If, if you can pull this kind of stunt once, who is going to commercialize a critical environmental technology and energy technology, you've, you've put everything on the table, and you realize that some political whim, if there's enough political pressure, will be taken away from you and given to your rivals who haven't done anything to copy it. 
I, I'm hoping that as, as the administration looks at this, particularly an administration that's running on the economy, if you want, if you want to pull the plug on the university economy, start messing around with our, our, our partnerships with industry and university. And the other thing I'd add is, under the Bayh-Dole system, the U.S. commercializes three new technologies and, find, and forms three new companies off of university inventions every day of the year. Every day. It supports six million new jobs. It's the reason why universities are part of every industri- every economic development program in, in any state. That wasn't true before Bayh-Dole. So the impact is going to be tremendous. And the other part is, if you do march in, the only rights the government gets from that are rights to use a federally funded invention, a patent. Well, if you look at these drug patents, that you know, most of which, you know, the drugs that actually came out of partially federal funding, the patent that came out of, of federal funding is going to be a, a, a small part of that. So you actually couldn't practice the, the drug anyway. It seems like a, a political tool. It, it probably sounds nice, um, but it would actually have to say, it wouldn't help reduce drug costs. It would only help un- undermine U.S. innovation. And again, remember the Chinese, uh, the Chinese developed a COVID vaccine. God help anybody who, yeah, <laughs> who took that it, one. Yeah. And there's a Russian vaccine. But yeah. you know, the last thing we want to do now is have to rely on the Chinese and Russians for our drug development, because now we've pulled the plug on on public private sector partnerships. You know, we've looked at over 350 primary indication drug approvals over the last 10 years, 350 new drugs. And we have used a new IT system to search for the federal uh, licensing statement that's required under an NIH grant, the by dole terms, as right. it were. And what we found out of these 350 drugs, only 4% even have a reference to a Bayh-Dole licensed patent that would be quote unquote marginable. When does the Xtandi patent actually expire? We've looked at that and we think it's going to be around 2027. So you're almost almost at the point now where it's going to be it's going to be available for generic. It's <laughs> right. a public good. Right. So uh, suppose you did march in an Xtandi. What's going to happen? Well, the patent owner, University of California and the, and the licensee can appeal it and they'll go to Secretary Becerra. So suppose he turns them down. Then you go to the Court of Claims. So this is not an easy process. And I think when you went to the Court of Claims and, and NIH actually, it was, let's suppose they actually did march in, uh, I think the judge would be very intrigued to know, okay, for 20 years, and I've got all these opinions from former NIH directors, you've said you don't have this power. How did you certainly, how did you suddenly decide you had this power? The Supreme Court just ruled in EPA versus West Virginia. Yeah, and OSHA as well, by the way. <laughs> okay. Well, the Supreme Court just ruled, hey, you can't just make up stuff out of your whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think this would be a perfect example of somebody suddenly saying, okay, for 42 years, the law didn't mean this. Now it suddenly does. The law hasn't changed. Standy is 0 for 3 yeah. in marching petitions. They've been through this process before. You've had three times under the Obama administration where they said, no, this doesn't meet the statutory criteria. It has been commercialized. So I'm not sure what it really gets you, but, but the damage would be significant because the other thing I like to add is when we passed Bayh-Dole, actually, let's go back. When we did the Bayh-Dole hearings, we didn't have companies breathlessly saying we want to work with universities. The criticism we got from industry on Bayh-Dole was Bayh-Dole was restricted to universities and small companies. So back to 1979, people said, well, if you really want to solve the problem, you ought to have big businesses in there. Well, we said, no, we don't want to have big businesses in because they're not the people driving the economy and they're not the people being really harmed by the former patent policy. It's, it, it, we had a lot of small companies say, we won't take government grants before Bayh-Dole because you'll take our inventions away. Right. Those are the people that, but when we passed Bayh-Dole, 
companies sat on the sidelines because they were thinking, well, what do universities know about research and how do we know the government can be trusted? That started to change when we started having the Boyer-Cohen patent coming out of University of California and Stanford. And they licensed that. We had the, the Chakrabarty decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. I also was involved in passing the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit in 1982, which actually strengthened the U.S. patent law. Right. It was a combination of Bayh-Dole saying, okay, now we'll decentralize this. Universities can actually have an incentive now to manage their inventions and try to commercialize them. The Chakrabarty decision said, okay, and by the way, biological materials can be patented. And we had the Court of Appeals pass that said, okay, now we're going to restore confidence in the U.S. patent system. That's what jump-started the U.S. economy. And if you look back to where our, our industrial renaissance started, which is actually the biggest one we've had in the history of the country, those are the three things that jump-started. We're still riding that wave. We're now weakening the patent system. We're now attacking Bayh-Dole. We're now attacking the life science industry. So it doesn't take a whole lot to actually undo that whole model. And we're doing that at an important time where we're facing a much greater challenge from China than Japan. Yeah. Japan was not challenging us militarily. China is out to pass us militarily and economically. If you look at 1990 to 2020, let's go 20 years. If you look at the data from 2021, which we've compiled, you see that China was nowhere in biotech for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, the last five years, there's been a huge explosion. In 2021, China funded 91 early stage venture backed biotech startups, almost equaling the US total, more than double the European total. We already see an erosion in the competitive framework. Right. And now we're going to go after Baidol, which is the nuts and bolts that's made that happen. The conversations you're having on the Hill, and you do get up there once in a while to try and knock some sense into folks. What's the situation with this? Are they aware of the competitive landscape and what a threat China is to biotech? Well, I, I think if, if there's one thing that has bipartisan support now, particularly, yeah, after, exactly. particularly after the balloon went over yeah. our country, I think everyone realizes now that this China threat is unprecedented. I don't think, and, and this is, I can't, I can't blame people. I mean, as you said, I was in the room when Baidol passed. That was 42 years ago. That's eons ago as far as congressional time. The average congressional staffer is like 25, 26. I was 30 when I worked on Baidol. So there's not much there's not much institutional history on this. You, you don't look much over 30. Well, th- thank you. I, 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 I feel much over 30. But see, that's the, one of the reasons we started the coalition was we said, you know, people have forgotten the history. There was an arrogance after World War II. Yeah. We were the, the colossus striding the globe. There was nobody else that was competitive. And we basically thought... We can do whatever we want, and we'll make a difference. In the 1960s, the Japanese decided they were going to get back on their feet, and I, I don't blame them for that. And so they, they started saying, okay, if the U.S. company is going to sell something in Japan, you have to give us, you have to make the technology available to us. And a lot of companies did that, thinking, okay, well, these guys can't make anything anyway. Well, China's done the same thing, though, well, too. Well, exactly. Unfortunately, we, we, we've forgotten those expensive lessons of before. And I think the reason we're having this now is, again, partly because of Baidol, We've had the biggest explosion of technological renaissance in the, in the country's history. Think about that for a second. And it's driven by small companies. I think a lot of people take that for granted. Yeah. And they think, okay, well, you know, we don't know if patents are fair. We want to make sure there's more access to this. Well, you're, if you're doing that, you're not really hurting the big, giant multinationals. You're hurting the small companies to compete. 50% of our new drugs come from small companies. They have to get venture funding. The VCs know for probably 10 or 15 years, you're not going to get your money back. They're not going yeah. to be able to sell a product. So the more uncertainty you put into that, the more you weaken the patent system, 
the multinationals are, are going to go different places. Let me just add another thing, which I think is, is driving some of the critics. They seem to think, okay, now that we've got these public-private partnerships, we can put additional uncertainty in the system, and the companies will do it anyway. It's like Animal Farm. Yeah. You know, we'll make it harder for the horses to produce. The, the, the pigs will keep making up, make the rules up, and the horses will keep producing. But what they forget is we've already seen, like I mentioned, in the 1990s, we put a reasonable pricing clause in. The companies didn't accept it. They walked away. Yeah. And the Chinese would love to have companies do more research in China. Uh, on, at least on paper, their patent system looks pretty good. They actually have a Baidu type system over there. So the alternative to Baidu is not, okay, companies will accept any kind of crazy thing you put in there because they have to work with the universities and federal labs. They're going to go some other place. We're sort of doing two things at the same time, uh, unfortunately. Well, one is, okay, I think there's a recognition. We better take this China thing seriously. But the second thing is people are not looking at the foundational principles, which the founding fathers knew. Article 1, Section 8 of our Constitution established the patent system yeah. before we had any in production in the United States because the founding fathers realized we are going to be a third world country exporting raw products or we're going to start making stuff and actually being competitive. I think we've forgotten all that stuff. And so, again, when you see attacks on the patent system as unfair, buy dole, that public is being exploited, and, the, you know, these things would be cheaper if the government just marched in and gave them to other people. You can take people's stuff once, but after you do it once, nobody's going to trust you again. And, and that's the real danger. Like you said, if you march in on Xtandi, first of all, I don't think the courts can uphold it. After that, you're not going to be able to repeat that again, and you're going to have companies running, <laughs> running as far away from you as they possibly can because no one is going to accept that again, not just in drug development, but environment, agriculture. Baidol covers the gamut. Yeah. Google, Google came out of Baidol. If you look at our study that was published in Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science, we looked at 23,000 NIH grants from the year 2000. Why 2000? Because it takes roughly 20 years for a new discovery to actually be applied in medicine. So we wanted to capture the whole life cycle. Right. You know, if we looked at those 23,000-ish NIH grants, they led to 8,000-ish patents. We then used those 8,000 patents to look through the patent families and any sort of association we could to products. And we found 41 products that entered clinical research. And then we found 18 that actually were approved. So 23,000 grants to 18 products. Okay, fine. You know, there's about 600 million-ish in NIH funding that went to those 18 approved products. Great. Okay. That's, wow, that's a good chunk of change. And I think to the average person who's working a nine to five gig, Sounds like a lot of money, and that's understandable. Right. But what's missed in this is $45 billion came from the private sector. So we're talking multiple, multiples, huge investment more right. from the private sector to make that happen. Now, if we look at Extandi specifically, Representative Jim Greenwood, who was in very much center of the Medicare policy, which was done in 2003, 2004, and under the Bush administration, he was quoted about Extandi, and he pointed out that there was 500,000 of funding that came from the NIH. Again, sounds like a lot of money. But then he pointed out Medivation, who actually licensed it, the small company before it was acquired, Medivation put $1.4 billion into it. Does the Congress understand 500,000 is not going to get a drug to market? Do they understand this? Well, far be it for me to say what Congress understands about it. <laughs> but, but you were there. Well, but here's, here's the thing. The other side has a much simpler slogan than we do. In fact, I mentioned to you the op-ed that ran in the Washington Post originally unveiling this new theory. It was titled, Paying Twice for the Same Drugs. Right. 
So the implication is that the government is funding the research and development, and these companies are just running off making all these evil profits. The example you gave is a perfect one. It was developed by a small company. They had to develop, what, $1.4 billion? Yeah, according to uh, Representative Greenwood. Yes, okay. and, I, I, and he and ran bio. I, I trust his number. I, I, I defer to him. <laughs> but you, know, you gave the numbers about how many of those inventions actually turned into products. For the ones that didn't turn into products, somebody had invested in that trying to do some research. For the ones that didn't make it, who took the hit? It wasn't the government. When NIH, and God bless NIH, I have a lot of respect for them, but when an NIH project fails, no one loses their job. No one loses money. They just go back and get another appropriation. When a company does that, the companies either go bankrupt, somebody loses their job, you shut down a whole operation. I read the Wall Street Journal. All the time you read these, these companies are going in phase two, phase three clinical trials, and something goes belly up where you're out a couple billion dollars. Yeah. So who pays for that? And under the Bayh-Dole system, the taxpayer doesn't pay for that. The government didn't come back and say, hey, you know, you did a, you did a, you really tried hard. I'm, I'm sorry you didn't make it. Here's a check. No, you eat that. And so the genius of the Bayh-Dole system is that huge investment that's required to go from the laboratory where you have a concept. Maybe you have some early stage, you know, research, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a product. The companies have to pay for that. And when they fail, they take the hit. The other thing that Congress should be looking at is what's called the valley of death. Yeah. This is where most of our publicly funded technologies die, because where the government leaves off funding, the government's funding early stage research, particularly at universities. Talk to MIT, talk to Stanford, talk to any university. First of all, it's hard to find a single company to license anything. The reason that Google was commercialized was Stanford couldn't find anybody who wanted to license Google, so they gave it to these two kids in the dorm who invented it. They couldn't find any licensees for Google. It's not un- uncommon for, for any NIH or any university. You can't, if you find one licensee or one p- person that's interested, that, that's a big deal. So this is a high-risk endeavor. To imply that the government, the government is picking up that risk is ridiculous. Our Bayh-Dole system, 70% of university licenses go to small companies. Our system is driven by small entrepreneurs who will take risks that big people won't do. And just like your, your example of Xtandi, they had a small company that, that took the risk. They got acquired. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, you probably have a bigger company now that can develop it and, and distribute it. You know, and those venture capital people, who somebody put that $1.4 billion up of their own pocket. And the acquisition made them whole. And, and again, how often does that happen? Well, so, it, statistically, about 9.5 times out of 10, it fails. Right. So, you know, our system is driven on private sector entrepreneurship and, and huge amounts. of Entrepreneur means risk taker. Uh, that's how our system's driven. The government is an important partner funding the, the early stage research, but it is not the party that's actually taking it to market. And that's where I think we need to really be careful because what distinguishes us from the Chinese is the Chinese are trying to have entrepreneurship without freedom. I don't think that's going to work. But the other part of freedom is it, it has inherent risk in it. Yeah. And the Bayh-Dole system and the patent system is designed to encourage you to take risk, but if the risk fails... No one is no one is is, uh, is patting you on the head and said sorry for the boo boo. We'll make it up to you. You you eat that and you learn on it and you, and you go on. But that's the real danger. I think back to back to what Congress needs to look at. Look at what makes us different. Why are we the most successful, innovative country in the world? Why are most of the drugs made here? How many drugs are made in socialist countries? How many drugs are made under the conditions that you're talking that you know they're talking about imposing on our industry? How many any kind of products are made when people can't protect their investment? The unfortunate thing is 
once you start going down that road and showing companies, again, that, in, that government really can't be trusted, well, what you're hearing now is under this attack on Baidol, the laws don't mean anything. Yeah. That basically it's like it's like the uh, the Red Queen and, and Alice in Wonderland. Words mean what I want them to mean, no more and no less. Yeah. Well, if if in fact a statute is interpreted by whatever the political whims of the day are, then you, you don't have laws. It's not a nation of laws, and no VC and no entrepreneur can live in a system like that. If we flip this around on its head a little bit and say, okay. Let's say the government decides it wants to go in the world of drug development. Now, you worked on the Hill. You're a seasoned campaigner up there. (laughs) The other people who don't like risk are politicians. They don't want to put their neck on the line. They want certainty, and they're certainly not going to take a risk, particularly on something that's risky. Now, we know that drug development is over 92% failure rate. We know that, at least in Xtandi case, let's use that as an example, $1.4 billion. How long does a politician survive if 92% of the time they're failing and throwing away $1.4 billion? Well, see, the problem is, well, I think you can answer your own question. Um, <laughs> I admit it's rhetorical. But, <laughs> but, but see, the, the, the problem is, and, and you can't blame, this is an obscure area. You know, Baidol, most people have never heard of Baidol. But rather than doing homework, I think people are jumping in to the emotion. Here's a big, important product, and it made a lot of money. Is that unfair? No one looks at, okay, how many? How about the 95 failures that this one thing has to pay for? Because somebody has to pay for the, you know, for the, the ones that, that die in the system. And just talk to VCs. I mean, a lot of their investments don't pay out. So you have to recoup it from something that works. That's the way our system operates. It, it's, it's capitalism, <laughs> basically. Which is now a dirty word, I guess, Well, Joe. you know, but, but, it, but it works. Yeah. As opposed to socialism, which doesn't work. Uh, and again, you don't have to take my word for it. Just look at the empirical data. To be fair, having been on Capitol Hill, um, these are not issues that people have a lot of background in. A lot of people on Capitol Hill don't come from industry anymore. You know, how many people do you know that actually make things in this, in, anymore? Most of us really don't know anybody. The thing, the reason why Baidol works is when we started crafting Baidol, we did not go to academic theorists. We went to people that actually had hands-on experience in trying to commercialize government-funded inventions and ask them, why isn't the system working? And the reason that Baidol has worked for 42 years is because it was crafted by people that had hands-on experience, that knew how the system worked, that understood why the previous system wasn't working before. And as I mentioned, it was actually based on years of actual practice at NIH when they had an administrative policy, which is the predecessor of Baidol. So we saw that model. We saw, when we were passing Baidol, we looked at the NIH administrative model. There were 28,000 government-funded inventions sitting on the shelf. The Comptroller General said not a single drug had been commercialized when the government took the rights away from a contractor or a university. Not Ooh, a single one. Not one. Not one from NIH. Wow. Okay. 5% being licensed doesn't mean that was commercialized. When NIH had their administrative policy where universities that could own the inventions, licensing went up to 20%. So we actually had empirical data. We didn't just pass by Dolan somebody's theory that somebody just came down the hall one day with an idea. We had empirical data. We had the Comptroller General, Elmer Statz, who did a study for us on the past policies. He told us about his experience with Lyndon Johnson when Johnson was saying, how come we're not getting more out of NIH being commercialized? So we built it on empirical data which costs billions of dollars to run that experiment. <laughs> Again, and, the ex- and the experiments have been run. And the experiments have been run, and we've even run the experiment on, okay, let's try the other side's theory. We tried their theory on, okay, let's put all the stuff in the public domain, maybe somebody will throw a pixie dust on it and turn it into products. That didn't happen. We tried their experiment when they said, okay, let's impose reasonable pricing in there. NIH did that. What happened? 
companies walked away. It crashed. Yeah. Now, now the people on the other side, it's like every time reality hits them, they say, well, you can't really trust reality. We just have another theory. But we've run those experiments. Yeah. So I think if you just look, don't have to take Joe Allen's word for it. Look at the data. Uh, and even more than that, talk to the people that actually are doing this. Don't talk to some theorist. Don't talk to somebody with a paper. Go out and talk to a VC who's funding companies. Go out and talk to somebody who's actually commercializing a product, not just a drug thing, but like I said, we had four entrepreneurs looking at some really exciting energy environmental technologies. The energy environmentalists people told us, first of all, if the government marched in on anything, not just environmental, but let's say they actually marched in on Xtandi, these people said we would never get VC funding because VCs are not stupid. And they also said, we wouldn't put our personal time into this because now it looks like you can just take it away from us anytime the political winds change. We've got other things we can do. So, Joe, where does this land? Uh, the answer, the short answer is I don't know, and I don't think anybody does. This petition has been pending for over a year. Actually, I should also mention that Senator Biden, before he was president, actually supported Bidole. Biden was on the Judiciary Committee when I was on there, so he was actually voted for Bidole. My hope is that even though there's considerable pressure being put on the administration, he's running for president. The economy is far and away the biggest issue. I'm hoping that somebody will realize, hey, listen, this this doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, if you want to get the U.S. economy back on its feet, decoupling our, our engine of innovation is the last thing we ought to be doing. So that's my hope. If they bow to political pressure, like NIH did in the 1990s, I think it's going to be catastrophic because I think overnight you're going to find these, just like it happened with NIH in the 90s, companies are going to walk away. They're going to say, why in the world would I ever do that? And see, I think the fallacy is, you know, these people that look down on industry, they really think, okay, we've got these guys over the barrel because they have to work with the public sector now. And we can put any kind of crazy stuff on there and they're, they're just going to swallow it because they need to get more government funding and they'll just do whatever we tell them. I don't think that's true. And particularly for small companies. Entrepreneurs can do other things. Venture funding will just move into other areas. Yeah, it'll go into other sectors. It'll move out of healthcare and go <laughs> and, into whatever. Yeah. And the other thing is the people who would be most delighted about this would be our friends in Peking, Beijing. It looks like we are so feckless now that a model, which they actually acknowledge is the best model in the world for including in integrating universities in your economy, that we've become so feckless that we'll just on our own undo that, unilaterally disarm. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's hard to see the silver linings, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful. This is a big issue. This is more than just some little obscure law that we'd ever heard of before. This is fundamental to the U.S. economy. Joseph Allen, Executive Director of the Bayh-Dole Coalition. Joe, it's been great having a chance to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. And no one has ever quoted Frank Zappa on a <laughs> podcast I've been on before. Thank you, Joe. Bye-bye. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.